Chapter 13, The Messiah's Historical Second Coming One of the great cornerstone foundational teachings of Christianity, besides Paul being their chief apostle, is the soon coming of a Savior Messiah. Again, in a close examination of the scriptures, sprinkled with a little common sense, we find a radically different story. Again, some of this chapter will be redundancy, considering many earlier comments about the Messiah and his apostles. But this chapter assembles more of the bits and pieces of truth into a more complete and astonishing package. Before getting into the nuts and bolts of this topic, notice the word historical in the title. I don't know a single church or Christian denomination who would accept the essence of that word. In fact, most will find such a historical return hysterical, not to mention heretical. But everyone's entitled to their opinion, right or wrong. In fact, the United States was founded upon the concepts, concepts of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, both being equally important. You cannot have freedom of religion without freedom of speech and vice versa. The greatest proof of the Hebrew Messiah's return being historical, then, is in the unfolding of the feast rehearsals in real time as we saw in an earlier chapter. The Messiah was pictured by the Lamb, which was slain for the firstborn of Israel, which translate, transpired in real time in the beginning of the first century. His shedding blood for his priesthood, again firstborn, preceded the wave sheaf ceremony, which again signaled the beginning or the countdown to the completion of the spring harvest. Yeshua fulfilled the wave sheaf by emerging from the grave exactly three days after entering and leading out the saints of old. That's in Matthew 27:56. To think the spring harvest was canceled after Yeshua initiated its beginning is pure absurdity. The completion of the spring harvest 50 years later was set in stone or motion after his resurrection. Considering he promised his disciples he would be returning for them after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which happened precisely as he predicted. Did he really then lie about returning for them in their generation? Well, of course not. What a ridiculous thought. <clears throat> Let's take a closer look at the details proving beyond a shadow of a doubt Yeshua returned for his priesthood or disciples in the first century as he promised. We begin by closely examining Matthew 24, which is echoed by Luke 21 and Mark 13. Matthew 24 opens with Yeshua and his disciples on the hill overlooking Jerusalem and the temple, and Yeshua telling them it was all going to be destroyed, so completely, in fact, that not one stone would remain upon another. Confirming that prophecy is the great Jewish historian Josephus, telling how he stood by Roman Emperor Vespasian, who sacked and destroyed Jerusalem, overlooking the city and marveling how one could never tell a city had ever been there. So complete was the devastation. After prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem to his disciples, it says they took him aside in Matthew 24, 3, asking him privately, When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That is the first century age. Notice how the question of his return and Jerusalem's destruction were lumped into the same question. In Matthew 24:33, he answered both questions with the same answer. But before getting to that answer, let's take a closer look at some of the details leading to it. One thing overlooked by most is the personal language used throughout Matthew 24 discourse. First, we are plainly told his disciples took Yeshua aside privately, showing he was only addressing them. 
Then as he was giving that lengthy list of prophecies, anyone looking will notice the abundant use of personal pronouns, such as you, when you see, when you hear, when they deliver you, let no one deceive you, etc. In fact, during that discourse, he used the personal pronouns you and your some dozen times. With that in mind, to say he was actually speaking over their heads to some people thousands of years in the future is absurdly ridiculous. In fact, if he was speaking over their heads with all the personal language he was using, how would it not make him a first-class deceiver? After his lengthy discourse, including not only the destruction of Jerusalem, many heavenly signs, and his second coming, he tells them this generation will by no means pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Of course, one of those things he had just told them was his return. That was in verse 30. Unfortunately, Christianity just cannot accept his words in spite of the fact at least four apostles, that's John, James, Peter, and the writer of Thessalonians, were teaching his return in their, in their generation as well. That puts to bed all the silly arguments that he was not speaking to them personally and not returning for them in their generation. <clears throat> Sadly, after asking a minister why the apostles were teaching Yeshua's return in the first century, I was told it was because they just wanted it so badly to be true. But the bottom line is, if he didn't return in their generation as his apostles were teaching, it makes them deceived and him a deceiver. No ifs, ands, or buts. And if he deceived his disciples about his first century return, how can we believe anything about him or what he said? Besides, as pointed out earlier, the greatest proof of Yeshua's first century return was his real-time fulfillment of the Passover and wave sheaf, which marked the countdown to the completion of the spring harvest, that is, of people, 50 years later. <clears throat> no doubt he is returning again in this fall harvest season, but not to take his priesthood to heaven as in the first century. Unfortunately, due to mistranslations, mostly names, many if not most scriptures or prophecies commonly believed to be of Yeshua are not him at all, but his father, Yahweh. For instance, Zechariah 14 tells us how the Lord comes on the day of the Lord and stands on the Mount of Olives and splits it in two. Unfortunately, this is another translator corruption. If they hadn't illicitly changed the names, everyone would know who the Lord is, which is Yahweh, Yeshua's father who comes and splits the Mount of Olives in two, a truth that changes everything. Another name change problem is Revelation 19, where we see someone riding a white horse with the armies of heaven coming to subdue the nations. Again, because of the mistranslated name, we lose the truth. But a big hint of just who this is, is the fact the one riding the white horse has a name no one knows but he himself. That said, only the father, Yahweh, could have a new name which only he knows. If it were Yeshua with the new name, it would have been given him by his father. And of course, Yahweh, his father, would certainly know it. It seems the Messiah Christianity is expecting isn't what is prophesied at all. His second coming clearly occurred in the first century unless he deceived and or lied to his disciples. But does that mean he's never again returning? Well, we don't have any clear prophecies, but no doubt he's going to be playing a major role in the near future events on planet Earth, beginning with the atonement goat ceremony. 
You see, as high priest, Yeshua must be here to conduct it. Well, that is, unless, of course, it's conducted in heaven, which is definitely a possibility. But there's more. 1 Corinthians 10.11 tells us everything that happened or was done in ancient times with Israel was a physical rehearsal of the real spiritual events to come. We have proof of this with the fulfilling of the Passover with Yeshua of the Lamb, shedding his blood for his firstborn exactly at mid-afternoon, 3 o'clock. We have more proof with his emerging from the grave exactly three days after being crucified on the tree. His resurrection, along with the saints of old, three days later, fulfilled the wave sheep rehearsal perfectly. We also have secular proof of the event in the Pilate letters. That's letters Pontius Pilate sent to Caesar Tiberius, now residing in the British Museum of Bible History. <clears throat> with that in letter in mind, is it only a bizarre coincidence to the one to lead the Israelites into the promised land that is after the atonement goat ceremony had the same name as the Hebrew Messiah, Yeshua, which was transliterated to Joshua. Was his name not also a prophecy as is the case with so many other names in the Bible? One thing has become incredibly clear. There are no coincidences with Yahweh. Everything is precisely planned to the tiniest detail, which strangely being still true to our free moral agency. <clears throat> It's virtually impossible for our finite physical minds to embrace such a concept of a Creator's precise and detailed plan for us while still giving us free choice in all things. But it does help us under to understand the fact that there is no word in Hebrew for coincidence. To end this chapter, I'd like to share one last point. Christianity teaches Yahweh gave His Son for the, the world, that is, the cosmos. <clears throat> That's in 1 John 3.16 and a couple other places. Unfortunately, another translator travesty was to mistranslate the Greek word cosmos, where we get our word cosmos, that's spelled with a C, to world. Obviously, how can cosmos, which we call the heavens, and the world be the same thing? Well, they're not the same at all. If we look up world, that's cosmos, spelled with a K, in Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, we find the chief meaning is order. In fact, that's why we call the heavens cosmos, spelled with a C, because they are very orderly. Unfortunately, this world is very chaotic and always changing both geographically and politically due to the incessive wars. Considering the Hebrew Messiah shed his blood for his order, what order was that? Well, if we remember Exodus, that order is the order of the firstborn. Again, when we investigate the firstborn, we find they are the order of Yahweh's or Yeshua's high priest or priesthood, the harvest he returned to receive in the first century. In fact, the Catholic Church, which is founded by Jews, still call their priestly groups orders to this day. At any rate, Yeshua's first century return for his first fruit spring harvest cannot be honestly denied using Yeshua's own words and the obvious fulfilling of the spring or first century feasts in real time. But one thing's for sure, his first century return changes everything. In fact, one of the greatest issues of his teaching, denied by virtually all Bible-based religions besides his first century return, is what the shocking next chapter of this saga addresses.